Okay, you're on. Good evening, everyone. Uh, Lucia Angel, our co-chair, is uh, is not here, so uh, myself, Neha Bunger, will, the vice chair, will be uh, taking care of some of the administrative things this meeting. Um, so the first item on the so it's called to order. Yeah, I call this meeting to order. No, you, you don't need a motion. We can just call it to order. We just call it to order, and then yeah. usually we say the time like it's five, yeah, five thirty-five. So then we just mark that started at five thirty-five. Okay, sounds good. I call this meeting to order at five thirty-five. Brenda, would you like to take the roll call? Yes. Lucia Angel, the chair. Nia Banger here. B. Frank Walker. Richard Harvey Jr. Present. Lolita Medley, Eric Murphy, Don Harris, here. Mark Smith, here. Derek So, here. Ali Yesi, here. We have quorum. So we do have quorum. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So, so the first item on the agenda is the board chair report, but I believe we don't have a report today. That's well. Okay. Um, so the second item is the consent agenda for today. Does somebody, can somebody make a motion to approve the minutes for the December 10th, 2019 Co-Applicant Board meeting? A motion to approve. Okay. Ali motions to approve. Does somebody second it? We second it. Mark seconds it. Motion passes. The second is to approve the 2020 Co-Applicant Board meeting calendar. Does motion to? I Richard move to accept the approved 2020 Co-Applicant Board meeting calendar. Thank you, Richard. Does any second that? Second. Okay, Don seconds it. The motion carries. Um, the next item is an action for the approval of the 2020 subrecipient agreement. So we'll need a motion to approve uh, the self-receiving agreement as a reminder. What we can do is, you know, make the motion to approve, get someone to second it, and then at that point we can, to the extent that there is, you know, some discussion that will be necessary, we can engage in that discussion. But before we can discuss the self-receiving uh, agreement, uh, why don't we go ahead and make a motion to approve it? I make a motion to approve. Now the floor is open for discussion. Is there any discussion on the item? No. Um, the the subrecipient agreement, um, where do like the bullet points specifically work? Well, it said calendar. Is is that is that is that an integral part of it? About the subrecipient agreement is our contract with the county. So we did three sections of board orientation on the subrecipient agreement during the last three meetings. So in the last three meetings, we talked about last year's subrecipient agreement, and now we have this year's subrecipient agreement ready for approval, and it's our contract. Um, so the subrecipient agreement established us as a subrecipient of the HRSA award, which allows us to have our federally qualified health center status it also present, uh, provides the grant dollars primarily for our mobile health clinic. And then it's also related to all of the services for people experiencing homelessness at Alameda Health System within our scope of services. And as a reminder, that's our Eastmont Wellness Center, Hayward Wellness Center, Newark Wellness Center, and the Highland Wellness Center. So it is the, the primary contract that creates us as an entity and you as a board, which makes it a very important foundational agreement for us. Um, I will say that the subrecipient agreement um, in its <coughs> principle was already approved by the commission, which is the board for the Alameda County Healthcare for the Homeless Program. So they approved it, their commission approved it, and <coughs> it was written. And now it comes to us for you to approve it. And then from there, what would happen is our agencies both sign it 
and then I think ultimately the Board of Supervisors like ratifies it or something like that based on the approvals by the boards. Um, so our agency signs it after you say that it's a-okay. It's yep. been reviewed by county, uh, by council, sorry, by our, um, Alexander's approved, uh, reviewed it, and we don't see any problems with delivering on the subrecipient agreement. I reviewed it as well um, and made sure that it was something that we could also deliver on and was in alignment with our ideals. Some of the primary changes from last year are just about really creating a document that at its foundation is about partnership and collaboration and being in it together to deliver the health center program. And I think that is visible in the wording of the document. And then the other primary part is really this um, healthcare for the homeless mobile funding. So the positions, there's no change in the funding. It's the same as it was last year. There's no, there are no major changes to the expectations so when we present here today, it's pretty much something that has been vetted, uh, you know, by the, the health center, including you know myself as the legal representative of the health center. And uh, what what we can tell is that we, we made I want to say substantial changes, but we did make some significant changes uh, to certain additions that the county had proposed. So we do feel comfortable, and this is the reason why we do recommend the co-applicant board to approve as is. Uh, and you know, not only because you know we incorporated the provisions that we felt were necessary, and we also removed provisions that we felt were, uh, you know, were not legally feasible, or you know, were provisions that we wouldn't be able to meet, uh, and may ultimately expose us to some form of liability. So, um, I just have one question. Yep. Uh, on page twenty-one, uh, item two, part A and B where it says HL shall provide 1,200 medical visits and the second one says 1,200 enabling service visits annually. Mm -hmm. It's a very specific number. Mm -hmm. Is that something that, just wondering about the origin of the number. Those are specifically for the mobile health clinic. Okay. And it's based on um, having, the, the 1,200 is uh, 100 visits per month for mobile health to deliver. The idea behind the enabling services versus the medical visits, there would be 100 um, visits medically per month and 100 enabling services are with our community health outreach workers or other people within our unit that provide transportation or financial assistance or other resources to patients, including outages. Um, you'll see also in the attachments, there's something called the RBA, the Results-Based Accountability Metrics. And that spells out some more specifics about what they're hoping to accomplish through the enabling services visits or through the medical visits. The 1200 is a stretch for mobile. Um, currently, per month, we're seeing about 80 to 90 medical patients per month. Um, we're expecting that we're gonna be able to get that up to the 1200 per year without too much of an issue. Um, that was one of the reasons that we changed the model for the mobile unit to be Alameda Health System team versus uh, a combination of staff members from Alameda Health System and Alameda County because we have flexibility now around scheduling that we didn't have before. Um, and so there is evidence to suggest that we're on an upward trajectory. So before we were rolling, we were at about 40 visits per month. Then the team just got started in October, November, and December, and they've maintained about 80 visits even through the holidays, which I think is especially hard. You know, there was holidays for Thanksgiving and Christmas and days off. So I think that moving into January and forward, the team really, really understands that they're they're trying to hit 100 visits per month and making arrangements to the schedule to help support that. So we're working closely. It is a bit of a stretch, but not a huge stretch, stretch appropriate stretch to improve the service and increase the care. Thank you. Any other questions or points of discussion? All right, so the subrecipient agreement will be approved as recommended by the staff. Do they need to vote? No, it's the mayor. So, so you made a motion. Who? So you made. Who made the motion? You did, right? I, I, I believe. Derek. Derek made the motion, and she okay. seconded. 
not on second the calendar. Okay, so you did it. Okay, so all in favor will be the last piece. So all in favor of the motion to approve these? Yeah. So Aye. Aye. Okay. Aye. 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 Okay. Motion carries. document last month so the idea is that we provide the document ahead of time so that you can review it and gather your questions and last month we also did kind of an orientation to look at some of the issues that we thought might exist within the policy and so now we get a chance to talk about it and see if we recommend anything different but right now the motion is to approve it as it is. Yeah. Um, one quick question now that we've actually approved the motion for, for, for that article for instance um, will we then see, uh, then we'll actually see a charity care policy, we'll actually be able to see it in full? It was provided. It was already provided. Yeah. It's provided it here right now. Yes, absolutely. Uh, oh, okay. So, and we're a little concerned about the determining of the eligibility was the thing that came up last time, that um, the, the spirit of the policy is very good and, and through all of the the other points is very well carried, except when it comes to the determining uh, of the eligibility. I'm a little concerned about that, about the, the weight of determining whether or not one a person who is who qualifies for that policy. Um, we need to either if there's a way to change the language in Part B, page 72 charity presumptive eligibility because some of the so it's page four of that document yeah, and it will be page 72 in the back page oh okay thank you so it talks about using the, the person's in cases where the person is not able <coughs> to provide uh, their the financial documents to show that they are eligible for the charity care policy or they qualify for assistance under the charity care policy, they would use the person's eligibility for either food stamps or lunch programs, um, one of the other listed options to see if they're eligible and if these are federally mandated eligibilities that change, um, that will also create issues for us to care for somebody under that policy because the eligibility for food stamps is not something that we control. And if they're not able to qualify for food stamps, doesn't mean that they're not facing financial hardship. It just means that under the new criteria, they're not qualified. person's not able to show that, then that means that they could go into further debt because we would determine that they are not, in fact, eligible when they, when they're not able to pay for it. And how do we avoid that from happening? This is what One of the concerns that arises is, uh, so there are certain provisions of the both state and federal law that precludes us from creating patient incentives or what, are, what right. they call patient inducements. So the list that we have here, you know, it's it's not a, a inclusive or dispositive list. That's why we incorporate language that it says may include. But we believe that, you know, from a legal standpoint, this is, these are, uh, you know, items or eligibility verifications that can mitigate that, you know, any allegations of uh, inappropriate patient inducement. Because what happens is the Falamira Health System has a broader, uh, you know, uh, definition of the presumptive eligibility, then as a patient, some may argue that, well, why would I go to 
in order for us to be black and go to Alameda Health System and they will automatically presume that I'm eligible for this charity care fund. So we have to be really careful. There's a lot of gray area there. So when we drafted and, you know, I reviewed this policy, you know, along with Heather and, you know, all the leaders from Alameda Health System, uh, that was the area, one of the areas that we determined that, you know, the right compromise was to, you know, utilize what we have there, uh, but also including the language that we're saying we may include. We're, we're acknowledging that there may be other circumstances where presumptive eligibility is, uh, you know, will be a dim on the, the individual. But, you know, again, from a legal standpoint, I think it's, it's very challenging for us to expand that a lot broader just because of the patient inducement uh, concerns. So how do we balance the two out? So where, so if you look at page five of this, the last um, point under section E, where um, the director of patient financial services will use appropriate judgment to differentiate charity case, charity care based on the criteria in lieu of a bad debt determination. So what are, it's not determined what criteria they're using, criterion they're using for judging, for making that judgment. And is this under section E1? Number three. E3? E3, the last line of that. So go ahead and repeat that question because there's language here that uh, gets, so that probable charity, uh, charity care, that gets into the presumptive eligibility. But your question is, how do we? But so if somebody is not able, they don't uh, put in their financial papers, and so, but then they're also not able to determine whether they are eligible or not. This is sort of that last backstop, whether before they finally fall into debt collection or they're still deemed mm -hmm that they can still qualify. So the director for patient financial <coughs> services can make that call using appropriate judgment. Um, so there's no criteria. Yeah, so, so it's left vague because, I mean, and this is more of a question for April Bass. As, am I correct, mm -hmm. uh, Heather? As this, you know, she, and, and the, another reason why we left it somewhat vague is because, again, it gives us that. It gives us the flexibility to be able to uh, uh, provide charity you know, under certain circumstances. So we just didn't want to have something that was too, uh, you know, direct and wouldn't give us any type of wiggle room for us to make, you know, certain exceptions. Is it possible then to put in some examples of that so that there is there is more transparency on what criteria can be used for? for so I'm not sure. So I think it's this, so for E, E is about the time requirement. So a patient comes in, they're given an opportunity to provide the financial documents and either they do or they don't. And in this case, what's happening is there's a time frame with which we have to turn around to do business. And so and so this is allowing, so this says that if you've got 150 days for a patient to make this happen. And if those 150 days expire and the patient still hasn't turned in the documentation that they need, that there's still an opportunity for someone to determine that it's charity care. Right. And, and so I believe that at that point, I know it says appropriate judgment, but the idea is at that point they can use even the um, presumptive eligibility criteria where they say, we know this patient was homeless. We already said that. We were still trying to gather this information. We're still trying to enroll them in a program. We're still trying to get those things. And that still didn't happen. Okay, based on that, I can now without any paperwork say, we're putting them into that category. It gives them the opportunity, and I think it's really more about the time frame, and it's still based on the other, you know, guidelines above. Yeah. And then I know that there's probably another point of concern, which is the debt collection. We still have additional uh, procedures that will need to be taken into consideration before we even get to that route. Because I know that's one of the main issues that the county has uh, you know, which is ascending individuals to their collection. So what we incorporated here were the additional procedures that will need to uh, be reviewed before someone is, you know, put in, in that. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, 
just really trying to think of those outside cases, the, the edge cases that you know, these people, there may be somebody who, for example, will say, I'm not homeless, but they're couch surfing, so they were given a dress, but they actually don't have the financial ability to pay. They haven't applied for food stamps, so you don't know if they are eligible for that or not. So if you don't have any information, a wrong determination of lack of eligibility would be be very difficult for somebody who is in this situation. Yeah. So, so the cut stuff, for example, you know, and I guess we should say fortunately, so that would be covered under SB 1152. So couch surfing is, you know, falls within the scope of the definition of homelessness. And then as such, uh, we also incorporate language there that requires us to comply with all the provisions under, uh, you know, SB 1152, which includes offering and, you know, also the presumptive charity. But, you know, but I get your point, but, you know, and, you know, as a reminder, the, the line that we're trying to uh, work on is it, that fine line where we're not inducing individuals to choose us over anyone else. And this is the reason why we have, you know, we have to be very careful as far as what we include on the policy or how broad we interpret our charity care policy, which is another thing that I have to say. Our policy is a lot broader and more generous than what is required under HRSA. Uh, and you know, in terms of, you know, the federal, federal federal poverty line, uh, you know, uh, income ratio. Ours is, goes all the way to 350%, whereas hers that only requires 250. Uh, in addition to that, we also, uh, you know, provide discounts. And that's another area that we have to be very careful about. You know, the point being is that, you know, our charity care policy is it's, uh, probably among one of the most generous uh, policies out there. And, you know, we try to uh, uh, draft it in a way that, you know, we can protect, you know, the challenge that happens is the administration of the policy or the actual um, standard work that ensures that the policy is followed for those patients that are especially vulnerable. And so the idea even behind this group and approving this policy is that you're setting up what is the the, uh, the value of the system that that we value uh, being able to provide care for all people, especially those vulnerable, without creating more harm by causing them death. Like that's that's what we're setting up as the guiding um, kind of the guiding light, the guiding principle. Thank you for the system. And I think what the, the work that is ready for us now that this is drafted in this way, which is the best we've seen it yet, is really working towards how is it then acted upon within our system? Where do we find, and it's work then that I do, which is I find those places where this person was eligible, what happened, like, how did they end up in bad debt? They, they, according to the policy, because they're experiencing homelessness and that box was checked, they would have had presumptive eligibility. What happened? Why didn't that happen? How did that screening either happen or not happen? Like, what's the work that's being done day to day that's stopping this policy from actually reaching the people who need it most? Because I think that's where, there are those, that's where the challenge is. I don't think the challenge is necessarily the policy. I think the challenge is using the policy and standard work every day to prevent those people slipping I'd like to ask a question, and, I, and forgive me if I don't if I don't describe it the way exactly I'm thinking of it. So I, I might screw up the question. But uh, my question is: um, Do we have anything as far as our, that policy regarding charity that um, that prevents, or at least? assures that there's some kind of, I don't want to say disciplinary, <coughs> but let's just say um, under this policy somebody came in and they were a charity case and someone um, who has to make um, decisions, medical decisions at that point um, and also in regards to viability of that person to receive charity, that person um, uh, forgets or somehow ignores a certain provision regarding um, charity and therefore the person who should receive it does not receive right. it does that is there any uh, disciplinary action or any or any kind of consequence of that action um, 
not just against the patient, but the person who did not implement the policy? So in general, we want to rely on systems and not necessarily individual people to, okay. to, to make things happen. So an example will be in, in mobile health for our mobile um, patients. We know that we want to not charge patients from mobile, especially those who are determined to be self-pay. Um, we know that we don't want to do that. And we said we want to make sure that they don't get billed. And then we were relying on the system, EPIC, to build in the rules that if a patient who enters our system who is identified as self-pay does not get billed. Um, okay. When EPIC rolled out, that did not happen. Even, you know, they said that they built it. It didn't get built in the right way. Therefore, patients received bills. In which case, we found those bills. We went back to the system and we said, okay, try again. They fixed it. Patients were not getting bills. I could see right away that the patient, the charges went through to say, yes, we provided that service, but that the patient balance, that I would check them so there are reports that come out. So it's the idea of their checks and balances. Our system will then give me a report that says, here are all the people who should have gotten X and here's what happened. So we build reports so that we can monitor it and audit to see whether or not it's happening. So next step in this situation was bills are cleared. However, a patient got a statement the patient's statement went out before the system zeroed out their balance. Okay. So by the time the patient brought it to us and it said that they owed money, I could see, no, 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 it's already been cleared. But then I said, they shouldn't have gotten a statement. Like what A has to happen before B. And so then the next step was, they suppressed all statements to patients out of mobile. Now, patients out of mobile won't get the statements. Furthermore, they won't be charged, mm. it'll show that they have the service and they won't get the bill. But there still is this process of checking the system, is it working, is it working, is it working? Yes, would that be what you described on page five, number three? Um, in this case, for the mobile system, it's a little bit different. The patient was not determined. It, in theory, yes, that's presumptive eligibility. The patients with mobile were having a presumption that they are eligible for charity care, therefore we are not charging them, therefore we're creating a system by which they won't be billed. In our system, they're not called charity care automatically. They're still called self-pay. We've just stopped it at the point of mobile. What's happening next is that patient comes into our system, they'll go to the laboratory or radiology, they walk in and they're still identified as self-pay. So as soon as they get a service and we have a radiology, there's still a problem. And so that's the next level of me trying to work out, okay, now how do we stop them from getting paid, getting charged there? Because we have presumptive eligibility essentially out of mobile that stops the bill, but they aren't identified as charity care patients because they haven't gone through the process of screening financial documentation and asking the questions. We're like skipping a step up at mobile to facilitate care and gender trust, get them seen right away, and, 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 and like, stop all barriers, but they walk in and then there's this new barrier that they're gonna walk in, they're still identified as self-pay, they're not going to be presumptive charity care. And so my continuous question is why, why not and how do we make that happen? So there are these things, again, where I say in the system that, that aren't catching, that need to be stopped, and we need to create that. The policy says there's room for that, but the reality in the day-to-day -day operations aren't always um, uh, complete. So you're saying it's not all sewn a, up yet. Yeah, so you're saying that there is a check and balance in place to make sure that there are these edge cases that don't slip through and that. Yes, uh, through reports. And and I think, and right now the next step and what we're working on is, is trying to ask the right questions to find out where else it's happening. Um, for us, we're concerned with all those patients identified as people experiencing homelessness, and that's kind of our um, our authority, our interest, and then also my office, that's my work, right? Where I really wanna find out how this policy applies to the people in the homeless health center, and then how it's used every day, and how do I ensure that any patient experiencing homelessness is not sent to collections or bad debt for any reason, yeah. Have one question. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I don't see on here uh, applies to 
several people that, that were in my camp. Mm -hmm. They came out of incarceration, mm -hmm. and um, those leaving, like San Quentin, have no benefits mm -hmm. uh, from social services. So how do they account for it? Because this one person literally died on the street because he could not get medical service. He came here to Highland, and he was refused service. I don't know all the circumstances on it, but he died. So, so in, in Tala, those are obligated us to provide uh, treatment when there's an emergency. Because mm -hmm. he, he, we literally brought him in here in an ambulance. And uh, he was, because of certain things, I don't know what it is, mm -hmm. uh, finance determined that they couldn't service him. And he was released an hour later. So I'm slightly shocked to hear that you don't And that was a person who came out of incarceration. So that's my concern. And he's homeless. Right, yes. So yeah, my instinct is I'd like to know more about that. Yeah. So I want to know, I'd like want to follow up. What happened? Where is that gap? Um, assuming it follows all the rules of yes, it should have, they should have been cared for. Yeah. And from what you're telling me, I, I'm going to go along, yes. So what, what prevented that from happening? What's in our system <coughs> that stopped that yeah. from happening? Yeah. Um, and so um, maybe later, um, after the meeting. Because I can give you the person's name and yeah. the approximate date of, of that happening. Because obviously we can't get any more information out when he's deceased. Right. Exactly. Yeah, so we'll, we, we, yes, it, that does not sound like that should have happened. And so I won't yeah, that's, that's what I, I'm questioning because I didn't see any any means that would qualify that person. The person's experiencing homelessness, that's mm -hmm. all the means you needed. Mm -hmm. that's, that and that's what we're trying to do with this policy, that mm -hmm. anybody experiencing homelessness is gonna be automatically tracked to this new place that says, you know what, you're presumptive eligible. We'll still try to get you enrolled in Medi-Cal or still try to get you in Health Act, but you would never, ever go into that category of pre debt. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's where we're trying yeah. to go. We're not there yet. Yeah, because that's what I'm still trying to figure out, and this is, coming up on two years later now. Okay. This was March of 2018. Okay. We'll follow up later on that. We can discuss off, off the record just yeah. to prevent any privacy. Yeah. Any other questions? Just a general question. What does the application look like? The charity application? And I just wonder if they asked the question about community providers or other case managers that may be able to be contacted in, in the event that the client is not able to be reached? Um, yeah, I didn't attach the application. I'm, I'm sure that's something that I can get for you. Um, and we can send it or have it available next time. I'm not sure if that's included or not. It's the application. It's not necessarily part of the policy. So. Yeah, I was just wondering. Because they do try to make outreach attempts, that would be a good question to have on the application. So at this point, I, you might review. There's a motion on the table to approve the charity care policy. It's been seconded. We had a discussion. All in favor? Okay. So there's a motion on the table to approve the Alameda Health System charity care policy. We've had discussions been seconded. Um, no further discussion. I call for. We have all in favor. And all in favor. Aye. 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 Mark. Are you in favor? I'm sorry. Are you in favor? Say we're calling for the vote. Aye. There you go. <laughs> the motion passes. The Alameda Health System Charity Care Policy is approved. And move on to the next item on the agenda, which is the ad hoc committee report. Um, by myself, I believe we we're still in the process of uh, making an offer to a candidate. Uh, we don't have a new chair yet. And that's everything for that item. Uh, the next is just a report and discussion by. Okay, um, so this is just a standard report. There are some attachments, and those attachments actually are also included in 
as part of the subrecipient agreement. So you have an opportunity to see them in two different ways. Uh, for our health center compliance, right now we have no current compliance findings from the county. We do have another visit coming up on January 31st. There are four visits per year. They do it quarterly um, and attached um, to the program director report, you can see under attachment one, the outline of the items that they review for each of their meetings. You guys want me to pull that up? Our first meeting is gonna be actually focusing on eligibility, which we were talking about today. Um, it's not specifically around the charity care that will be quarter two, the sliding fee discount scale program, but because eligibility um, and registration and identifying people experiencing homelessness is such an integral part of also identifying for the um, sliding scale discount fee program, then uh, there typically is discussion about both. Um, we'll, we'll be talking about it both times. We'll talk about it in this meeting in January and then likely talk about it again in the meeting that follows the following quarter. Um, we'll be talking about uh, culturally appropriate care in this sense. Um, this frequently about translation and translation services and making sure that interpreters are available for all patients who um, are not uh, English speaking patients. Uh, we'll talk about the scope, which you guys approved in the last meetings, um, our hours, accessibility, our after hours call system. All of these are compliant issues included in the 19 program requirements for HRSA Health Center program. There are indicators attached to all of these, that's the, the, yeah, the recipient um, agreement, the indicators that are attached? Uh, it, you can find more details in the subrecipient agreement. You can also find it in the HRSA compliance manual, which is a document that I think we've maybe made a link to in previous, but you can Google search it, it's not that complicated to find. The HRSA compliance manual is the, the tool essentially that's used by HRSA and other agencies to monitor compliance and it kind of gives guidelines of what they would be looking for. So a for example on after all hours calls, uh, making sure that there's after hours coverage. When HRSA comes to visit, HRSA representatives will say, what's the number that patients call and you provide it to them and then somebody stays up really late at night and calls. And some, when the phone gets answered and all of that, they check it off. Yes, they provided the number and yes, somebody answered the phone at two o'clock in the morning. Um, that's the kind of thing that's in the compliance manual. Uh, they'll ask things like looking for evidence of patients within the homeless health center identified as homeless. We're able to show that to them through our our electronic health record. Um, they'll ask, what's your process, or how is it documented? Show us in your system how you do that, and how it works. But the compliance manual is a great, if you, if you want more, it's a very large document. But it's fun to read. Um, all right, and then for clinical care, um, just that, you know, I mentioned earlier the number of visits we're typically seeing. And right now I'm still focusing on our um, medical visits. Starting in January, which is starting now, we'll be reporting all of those enabling services as well. And it took us a minute to figure out how to count them, how to document them and count them within the electronic health record so that I could run a report and not just make assumptions. So our standard work is for our community health outreach workers to meet and assess the needs of the patients with every visit. And so they do that, and we found a way that they could document both that and then how, after the need was assessed, how they met that need, and then any follow-up from that need. So an example would be that a patient comes into mobile, it's determined that they don't have a primary care provider, they need an appointment with the primary care provider. The community health outreach worker will make an appointment for the patient, often within our own health system if that's what the patient wants, but sometimes within other health systems if that's preferred by the patient. And then there's a space, uh, it's called a task, that the community health outreach worker will follow up and check to see if that appointment was completed. Did the patient actually show up for that? So there's several steps. There's the identification that they need the PCP appointment, they're making the PCP 
making appointment and then confirming that it was kept. So those are the things that they would do. And I'm now able to make to, to uh, run reports to calculate that and to identify where the linkages may work or not work and, and how many visits they've had. Um, in addition, there's an assumption that the community health outreach workers are actually having more enabling service visits than there are medical visits because frequently our community health outreach workers are working with patients who didn't come in for a medical appointment. And so they're working also on how to document that, especially for patients who might not be in our electronic health system yet because they haven't been to our system at all. So they have another methodology for tracking and, and keeping track of those patients from a different place than our electronic health record typical to put a patient in that isn't going to register, isn't ready to walk in the door and give very much information. And typically that's what's happening. There's just a lack of trust. I'm not going to walk in. I'm not going to tell you much more than my first name. I'm not giving you any information because I don't know if I can trust you yet. I don't know if I'm going to get a bill for walking in the door. I don't know why you want to talk to me, right? Like there's some resistance. So um, sometimes there are a lot of visits with the community health outreach workers just outside of the van before they ever come on board. And I'm trying to help them to count those as well. Um, then there, I mentioned the R, R, the RDA metrics, so I'm going to also pull those up for you to see, and they're available both in the contract um, and here as an attachment. The results-based accountability metrics are reasonably specific to mobile, and as a reminder, they're specific to mobile because the grant dollars provided by the county are also specifically for the mobile staff, and so they have a strong interest in um, accountability for that program and for the program dollars that they're committing, the grant dollars that they're committing to our system. Um, so it includes the number of unduplicated patients that we're gonna see throughout the year. Um, 930, we have talked a little bit with them about you know, what's, the, what's the goal? Is the goal to see the same patient many times and create a strong relationship or is the goal to do major outreach, see a lot of people one time and then push them into primary care? see them less frequently on the van, but really be a connecting source to primary care. The 930 is primarily based on what's been done previously, which is about how many people we've seen per year with those 1,200 visits, which means that each person is getting a little bit more than one visit per person on average. Um, I will say anecdotally, we have a lot of patients that only see us once, and then we have a few patients that see us many, many times. And so the usually once or like 12 um, is typically what we're seeing. Um, there's a specific patient experience survey that the county has created with the help of uh, consumers that they've asked us to administer again this year. They're remodeling it for a place like mobile and so once they've remodeled it they'll provide it to us and then we'll um, start using that within our clinic. Um, they have a strong interest, as we do as well, because we're out in the community to meet with community partners frequently and regularly to make sure that we have a strong relationship with them and are meeting their needs and are, are very active within the community and thus there's an expectation to meet with community partners at least 20, that's twice per month. Um, and that's pretty typical. I'm out with community partners and my team is out with community. It's probably significantly more than that. But between them and I, we're easily meeting with uh, twice a month with various members of the community and their agencies. Then the enabling services are spelled out similar to the medical services as a specific thing. And then there's a clinical um, metric as well related to the screening for depression on mobile. The way RBA metrics work is you generally have a um, a process objective, what is it that you are doing, right? And what are we doing? We're providing care, we're doing surveys, we're doing meetings, we're screening people for depression. It's this thing that we're doing, a process that we're doing. And the next thing is the quality. How well are we doing that thing? If we've completed um, a medical visit with the patient, was it a high quality medical visit? Like, was it a good medical visit? How would you know? And so the way that we know whether or not it was a good medical visit, for example, is did they get a completed medi uh, medication reconciliation? That's one of the steps you need to do during the visit. That's one of those things that we can count and track. And so
And so with each process objective, there's a quality objective. How well did you do that thing? How well did you administer the survey or what were the results of the survey? That's the next one. Feel that they were respected through the process. Um, this idea of, uh, well, how were these community meetings? There's actually a process we call rounding here and I round on the community partners and I ask them how it's going. And so I get direct feedback from them. So I don't just meet with them. I have a specific things that I talk to them about when I'm there to see that it's going well. Um, again, with the enabling services, the purpose is really to get people back into the brick and mortar clinics, not just to be seen on mobile, but to be connected to a primary care for, uh, provider. And so this idea of we had an enabling visit, and through that enabling visit, how frequently is there a referral to an appointment at a clinic? as a result of that um, encounter. And this is per the number of patients, the 930 individual patients we see, not necessarily the number of encounters. Yeah. They might not get a referral the first One time. One question, what, what exactly does it mean by medication reconciliation? Reviewing all of the medications that the patient has and making sure their medications that they're still taking or not um, taking them off the list if they're not taking them, making so sure, sure that they have the right medication. Okay. Getting confirmation that I'm saying that correctly. Okay. And then um, in regards to the depression screening, then what are we doing about it? Is there a diagnosis and a related goal to behavioral health? That related goal might be, for example, a referral to behavioral health or a goal to uh, reduce their PHQ-9 score. We tried to, we kept that a bit on the vaguer side. Um, we're still working out how do we determine what a goal is. So we've given ourselves a little room. Sometimes it's, we've provided a referral and they've made the call. That might be the goal, that they've made the next step to at least make a call, even if they haven't had that appointment yet. So for each person, it might be an individual plan. And then there's the, okay, what did you do? How well did you do it? And did you make any difference by doing those things? Did it have an impact? So with, for each of those process objectives, there's a quality objective. And for each of those process and quality objectives, there's an impact objective. And so, you know, you've had the visit, you did your med medication reconciliation. Oh, by the way, while you were here, you had a diagnosis of high blood pressure and you're an Alameda Health System patient we really want to make sure that your blood pressure is controlled. Did that happen for how many people? And what's the standard? And so this is a standard based on um, what was done in the past in mobile and what the expectation is through um, some national metrics. Here, why is specifically targeting high blood pressure? Because it's a metric that we use in primary care for primary care patients and it's a national benchmark. So it's something I can report on and something that we track pretty strongly and we want to make an impact on throughout the system. Um, and it's nice when mobile health is consistent and in alignment with the rest of the system. Yeah. Um, uh, okay, for then uh, if we're referring to other people, we think that we're doing also a good job. So there's there's been an impact if you're willing to pull other people into our clinic and engender trust with your friends who are also experiencing homelessness, thanks very much. Our partnership score during the rounding, there's also a score that we give them an opportunity to do, and we like to at least have a score of eight out of 10. Uh, the, then we have this idea that if the patient, um, we made them appointment at Alameda Health System, and you went. So this real big impact of you made it to your appointment. By the end of the year, you made it to one. And it um, sometimes takes a long time. There's some pretty high no-show rates, and so this is a very ambitious goal. I will tell you that right now. 80% is a very ambitious goal. Um, and then, uh, additionally, this idea of completing their behavioral health goals based on their depression score. Those are our RDA metrics for mobile. Is the uh, yep. referring back to our, our policy? That's not something that is we're trying to figure.
figure out how many people are using the sliding scale. It, is there, are we tracking any information on what, let, what number of people are at the bottom end of using that scale versus the high end of using that scale? How much is that policy being used? So the RBA metrics are specific to mobile. In addition on the subrecipient agreement, there are some metrics related to system and system quality. Um, and, and, the and the county is very interested in especially how well we are identifying the persons experiencing homelessness and effectively applying charity care for patients experiencing homelessness or the sliding fee, sliding fee discount scale program. And there's recognition that we're not sure that we're always doing it really well and we finally have data with which we can track it. And so um, in a minute what I can do is I can pull that, some of those, it, it, they aren't very clear metrics in the subrecipient agreement. It's pretty broad. It says we are gonna focus on it. It says we, we will have an action plan related to this and that we are planning to make some forward progress. Um, but as EPIC is very new, kind of still learning how to ask the questions and how to get that information. And it's definitely on their radar and it's definitely part of the subrecipient agreement. It's just not part of the RBA. Thank you for asking. Uh, and speaking of which, that's a little bit about my, my little section on, on data integrity and technology is, is really about using that system to better give us the information we want so that we can really drill in and make sure that we're doing what we intend to do, especially for our people experiencing homelessness um, around medical care, but also around financial support and preventing burden on patients experiencing homelessness financially, which I think is one of our big opportunities for improvement, which the charity care approval today will really help um, there's a data governance committee that's also helping to understand how EPIC works, how this identification of homelessness happens, how it feeds throughout the system and is visible to different practitioners, and, and how to make that work better for us all. Would you say it's not a perfect system? Yeah. That was going to be my, that's one question I wanted to ask was, um, in your own personal assessment, um, how do you think it's going in general, um, the acceptance and, uh, of EPIC? EPIC is a fantastic tool. I think we are learning every day how to use it better for us. And it has so much um, capacity. And it's really exciting. Um, and I think I do not hear many complaints about moving to EPIC. I hear mostly, great. I just just can't learn enough fast enough. There's, there's there's so many opportunities and ways to use it for years for all of our various um, roles, and and we're all just learning as fast as we can so we can make it work for us better. And and specifically in, in regards to patients experiencing homelessness, that's what the data governance committee is a little bit about. How do we help it work for us better specifically around patients experiencing homelessness? And that's kind of my focus. And, and where I try to get support and make sure that it's moving forward so that we're using the system to the best of its ability for that patient population. Uh, other people throughout our system will have other priorities and other things that they're trying to move forward. How do we make sure that we're tracking behavioral health integration and, and people um, experiencing depression and making sure that they're improving, right? So you'll have different places within our system that are really pulling uh, attention and trying to make it work best for our whole system. Okay. And they're all integrated then. I want to know about behavioral health too, right? So we match those things together. About the behavioral health component, um, um, if you find somebody that is suffering <coughs> from depression, like uh, from a mobile plan, mm -hmm. and you refer them, would you refer them here? And if so, do we actually have a behavioral arm here? and that we don't have to refer them to, uh, say, another um, a partner. Yes. Another community partner as opposed to the here. The ref so typical referrals will go <coughs> with the patient's insurance 
whether their patients, where, whether their insurance allow them to do. That's no. frequently why they would be referred to one place over another if it's not the, but yeah, they're, they're referred to those things they're eligible for. And it, we do have behavioral health and all health. And then, as, like in mobile, what we're trying to do also is then closing that loop. Did they, we, we made the appointment, we made the referral did you make an appointment? And then did you go to the appointment? Like there's several steps. Mm -hmm. That's what, uh, at least at mobile, really focusing on trying to make sure those loops are closed and documented. Okay. What, um, was there, I could be wrong, but uh, before we broke for the holiday, um, was there some mention about, um, about uh, um, there was some consideration about purchasing um, a new new van or new mobile or new equipment for mobile? Yeah, new equipment, yes, um, new computers. Oh, new computers. And that, and where's that now? Requested. Oh, requested, but not? We haven't gotten it yet. Uh, okay. Requested. We'll wait. All right, and then I don't have anything further to say. I may have covered it earlier. HR process underway for our new leader. More to come. Maybe an update next month. We'll see. Well, I can say that uh, the two doctors and the staff that I've talked to about Epic since uh, it's gone in has been very positive for everybody that I've spoken to. You know, the doctors and the assistants, the staff, I go over to uh, Eastmont Wellness for my primary care, and then I'm here for my oncology. One of the comments I got from a provider was that it was the first time they really felt like they could see everybody's work throughout the system. That she made a care plan for a patient, and that patient then um, went to the emergency department because that was the suggestion that the, that the provider had for the patient was to, at, at point X, go to the emergency department the emergency department was able to see that provider's plan and do the things that that provider had planned out for the patient for care and that they had not previously been able to do that very easily. It was just all very visible and very easy to follow and it could also be seen that they followed it. So they really liked that. Everybody at the trust clinic is still trying to figure out Epic. Um, Did they go live? I, I think they have, but um, for some reason they're not, they're not as vociferous about it as other people, let's put it that way. They've been real, rather quiet about it. I, um, I've been meaning to ask David about the issue, um, but I, we, um, <coughs> we, we, had our, we had our annual, our monthly meeting um, just this past uh, Friday, but uh, I, I didn't get a chance to ask him more about it. First month is usually pretty hard. Yeah, <clears throat> we just did that for um, where I work at. It's, it's hard adopting any, or adapting a new software, but once you get the kinks out, it usually works out for the better of any organization. So I look forward to hearing all the new things that come with it. Well, being a professional patient, I, I like the idea that given all the specialists and everything that I go to, uh, it's, it's, it's great, it'll be great for me because uh, because the, everything can be shared. Um, it just, everything can follow you around uh, very seamlessly. And I like that idea because uh, nothing like having to lug around paperwork everywhere you go. Mm -hmm. And repeated, repetitive paperwork you have to fill out uh, it'll, it'll help with that, where you don't have to keep doing multiple, multiple paperwork for every doctor you go to. Yeah. Uh, so I, I really like that. Let the doctors be doctors instead of just uh, administrators. You know, let them do what they do best. any other, and then you can ask for other board member comments. 
that we get a better understanding about about what it is we're actually okaying, and not that we're not. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying we're not doing that, but I'm saying that, that as we go along, that, that we 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 we're able to retain the knowledge of of what it is we're doing uh, uh, from step to step, because I think that's important. Um, and also that we continue to ask uh, ask questions, uh, no matter uh, even if we're kind of dubious of our own questions, uh, to feel free to ask them because that's the only way you get answers. Ask questions. That's all I have to say about that. Yeah. Um, Hold on, I'm gonna. Uh,